It is a symbol of our fellowship both with one another and with Christ. It is a seal of the new covenant. And most importantly, it is a remembrance of our Lord, of His incarnation, of His substitution, of His resurrection, and of the coming consummation when He will bring it all to a close. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hi, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series with part four of The Lord's Table. The whole of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, can be summarized this way. Believers partake in communion in an unworthy way when we harbor unrepentant sin. We are to judge ourselves. You are to examine yourself. But as you'll discover today, no sin, however great, excludes you from the Lord's table if you're repentant. And no sin, however small, allows you to come if you're unwilling to repent of it. Are you willing to examine yourself before the Lord today? Let's join our teacher for more right now on The Word Unleashed. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily. This is before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. Those can never take away sins. But Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. What a priest could never do, he sat down, symbolizing his work was completed. Verse 14, for by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. Listen, folks, Christ died once. He only needed one sacrifice. It was once for all, complete and full. To say that he needs to be sacrificed again and again and again to atone for sin is to blaspheme his perfect work. The true significance of the Lord's Supper looks back to a past historical event, once for all, not to some ongoing spiritual sacrifice. So, the Lord's table then is not eating and drinking the literal body and blood of Christ, and it is not a constant repetition of the sacrifice of Christ. Now that we know what it's not, let's consider what it really means. What the Lord table, Lord's table signifies. What are the spiritual realities that the bread and the cup point to? Well, there are several of them, but let me just give you briefly touch on a couple of them so we can get to the most essential. First of all, the Lord's Supper is a confession of our faith. It is a confession of our faith. If you were in Egypt and you were told that God would pass through in the death angel, he would pass through and kill the firstborn of every house, how did you confess your faith in God's word? How would you have done that? Well, you would have killed the lamb. You would have applied its blood to the doorpost. You would have ate the Passover meal. You were saying by doing those things, I believe that our God is a savior, a rescuer, and he will save me and my family. When you and I take of the Lord's table, it is a confession of our faith in Jesus Christ. It is in essence saying this, by taking of this bread and the cup, which represents Christ's death, 
I am picturing the fact that I have personally received the spiritual benefits of his death. I am confessing that my faith is in him and in him alone. There's a second spiritual reality. It is a means of spiritual nourishment. The reformers used to call it a means of grace. We never earn grace, but God determined there are means through which he will distribute or dispense that grace to us. This is to those who have already experienced his saving grace in the gospel. Now that we are Christians, now that we are followers of Christ, activities such as gathering for worship, reading the scripture, prayer, and the Lord's table become a means of the dispensing of that grace in our lives. It gives us spiritual nourishment as we reflect on our Lord and what He's accomplished for us. There's a third spiritual reality in the Lord's table, and that is it is a symbol of our fellowship. A symbol of our fellowship. A symbol of our fellowship with each other. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul mentions this. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 16 as he deals with the Corinthians who wanted to go back to the idolatrous temples and have meals with them, he reminds them that to take of the table of Christ is inconsistent with that. Verse 16, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread." The Greek word sharing there is the word koinonia. It means to become partners with, to be in the fellowship. Paul frequently uses this word in the same way that Tolkien used it in his book, The Fellowship of the Ring. That group that bound themselves together with Frodo Baggins to destroy the ring of power, they were partners. They were in the fellowship of the ring. This word speaks of partnership, participation, Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10, when you and I take of the Lord's table, we manifest the reality that we are in the fellowship. We are partners of one another. We're eating together. But in verse 20, Paul goes further. Not only does it symbolize our partnership with each other, it symbolizes our fellowship and partnership with Christ. Because he says... In verse 20, that to drink the cup of demons is to have fellowship with demons. And therefore, to drink the cup of Christ is to be a sharer, to have fellowship and partnership with Christ. So the Lord's table then is a symbol of our fellowship with one another as well as our fellowship with Christ. We are eating a common meal together, as it were. That's what it symbolizes. There's a fourth spiritual reality to which it points. It is a seal of the new covenant. A seal of the new covenant. When God made promises, legally binding promises, that's all a covenant is. It's like the covenant a couple makes when they get married. They make a legally binding promise to one another. God has made legally binding promises to us. And when he makes those promises, he seals them in some way to make sure we know they're certain. Here in verse 25, notice what he says. In the same way, Jesus took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant. 
in my blood. The cup represented the spiritual reality of his blood poured out in death, and that was the seal of the new covenant. You say, what was the old covenant? It was the Mosaic covenant, the covenant given at Sinai, which could show us our sin, (coughs) but could never enable us to obey, never empower obedience. And so God promised a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, and Jesus' bloody death as a sacrifice was God's seal on that new covenant. I will keep my new legally binding promise to you. You say, what is that legally binding promise? Read the end of Hebrews 8, because the writer of Hebrews brings in from Jeremiah 31 the new covenant and the benefits of it that are ours in Christ. If you are a Christian, God has promised that he will empower you to obey him, that he will take you as his own, and that he will forgive your sins. He has made legally binding promises in the new covenant. And the cup of the Lord's Supper points to Jesus' blood poured out in death, and that bloody death ratified the new covenant. The fifth and final spiritual reality to which these signs point is a remembrance of our Lord. Here is the heart of what the Lord's table really means. It is a remembrance of our Lord. Notice that both in conjunction with the cup and the bread, Jesus says, do it for this reason. Look at verse 24. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, do this in remembrance of me. Now get the English word remember out of your mind. Because when we think of remember, we think of we forgot something and now we remember it. But to remember in a biblical sense is quite different. To remember in a biblical sense is, as one scholar writing about the Lord's Supper says, to transport an action which is buried in the past in such a way that its original power and vitality are not lost, but are carried over to the present. In other words, it means to relive the experience, to remake it our own. For example, in the Jewish Passover Seder, which is still celebrated today, the presiding host at the Passover Seder will take the bread and he will say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate when they came out of Egypt. Now that bread isn't the same bread they ate. That was 3,500 years before. But it's as if they're entering into it. They are linking to the past. They are reliving the experience of history. They are making it their own. That's what the Lord's table does. That's what it means to remember. So what does the Lord's table force us to remember about our Lord? He says, do this in remembrance of me. What do we remember? Well, there are briefly four pictures of our Lord that we're to remember. Four snapshots that we remember in the Lord's table. Number one, his incarnation. His incarnation. Look at verse 23. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body. Now, this can't mean that the bread actually becomes his body, because look what he says about the cup, verse 25. This cup is the new covenant. Obviously, Jesus didn't mean that that wine literally, physically became the new covenant. Instead, he meant that the cup represented the new covenant. 
These are just normal Hebrew ways of speaking, figures of speech. Jesus said, I am the door. Nobody thinks he's a literal door. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. Nobody thinks Jesus is a true vine. I am the water of life. Nobody thinks Jesus is water. Those are images. They're pictures. He's sitting with his disciples with his body intact, and he says, this is my body. This represents my body. Now think about that for a moment. We've gotten over the shock of that statement now in 21st century, but it is shocking. The eternal second person of the Trinity said, this represents my body and my blood. What does that mean? That means he had a human body. And in more than that, he took on full humanity. As you've heard me say many times, if you've been a part of our church, Jesus became everything you are except for sin. Everything you are except for sin. And he still is. And in the Lord's table, we remember his incarnation. He had a body and blood. He had full humanity. He was and is one of us. We also remember a second snapshot, his substitution. His substitution. You see, in the Hebrew mind, the body and blood referred to the two components you were left with after you made a sacrifice. When you sacrificed a lamb in Old Testament Israel, you took the knife and slit that animal's throat and you held it until the blood poured out and now you had a body and you had blood. That was a sacrifice. And so the picture here in the Lord's table is the picture of an innocent victim laying down his life as a substitute for the guilty. That is the constant affirmation of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He was the innocent substitute. He died in the place of every sinner who would ever believe. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. He didn't die for his own sins. He was just. He died for the unjust so that we could come to God. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, maybe you know about him, you've been attached to the church your whole life, you prayed some prayer when you were a kid, but you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you need what is offered in the Lord's table. You need the reality of substitution. You need somebody to suffer the wrath of God in your place. Either Christ will suffer it on your behalf or you will suffer it forever. That's the teaching of Christ in the Scripture. That's the amazing reality of substitution. Paul links the Lord's table with our Lord dying as a substitute. Look in verse 26. He says, you proclaim the Lord's death. Not just the fact that he died, but why he died. Look at what Jesus said about the bread. Verse 24, this is my body which is for you. Whenever Paul uses this Greek word translated for in reference to Christ, it always speaks of his death on our behalf, his death in our place. As Luke quotes Christ in Luke 22, this is my body which is given 
for you. A substitute. The, the New Testament also connects the cup with substitution. Luke 22, this cup is poured out for you. Mark 14, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Matthew 26, this is my blood which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. The cup teaches substitution. The innocent one dying in the place of the guilty. When we take of the Lord's table, we remember his incarnation. We also remember his substitution. The perfect one dying in the place of the guilty. Thirdly, the third snapshot, we remember his resurrection. Verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice the juxtaposition, death, he comes. What does that mean? That means he's alive. He died, but he's alive. He beat death as he promised. He rose on the third day, and he's now in the presence of the Father. When we take of the Lord's table, we're not just commemorating his death We're commemorating the reality that he beat death. He died for sins as a substitute, and then he was raised again on the third day. He's coming. And that brings us to the fourth snapshot, the consummation. This is what we remember, the coming consummation. Verse 26, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's going to come back and finish what he started. Luke 22 Jesus says, I'll never again eat this meal with you until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when we take of the Lord's table together, we're anticipating the day when as the perfect bride of Christ, we will sit down at the wedding supper of the Lamb and we will literally eat and drink with Jesus Christ our Lord. Matthew 26, he says, there's coming a day when I will drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Same thing in Mark 14. So that's the meaning of the Lord's table. When we take it together, it is a confession of our faith. It is a means of spiritual nourishment. It is a symbol of our fellowship, both with one another and with Christ. It is a seal of the new covenant. And most importantly, it is a remembrance of our Lord, of His incarnation, of His substitution, of His resurrection, and of the coming consummation when He will bring it all to a close. Those are the implications in the Lord's table. That brings us lastly and very briefly to the preparation for the Lord's table. Who should participate in the Lord's table? Remember, it is, after all, a confession of faith. So it is only for those who truly believe in Him, only for true followers of our Lord. It is in remembrance of Him. Now let me answer a very practical question that people raise. What about children? How old do they need to be to partake of the Lord's table? As a church, we leave that for you parents to decide. But clearly, from the biblical perspective, to take of this ordinance requires true faith in Jesus Christ. It requires an ability to understand the symbolism, and it requires a capacity to truly examine your own heart. That's why the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger catechism writes, It's only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. So this ceremony is only for believers. But Paul goes one step further here in 1 Corinthians 11. He says there are times when even believers 
should not take of the Lord's table. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. In one sense, we'll never be worthy. None of us will. But if we prepare ourselves properly, we can take in a worthy manner. But if we don't prepare ourselves, Paul says we share the guilt of those who killed Jesus. Notice he goes on in verse 28, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. The way to eat in a worthy manner is to take of the Lord's table only after you first examined yourself. Notice verse 31, he says, we are to judge ourselves rightly. Let's answer the question the other way. How does one eat and drink unworthily? How do you incur God's judgment described in this passage? A couple of ways. First of all, by mistreating other believers. Taking the Lord's table while you're mistreating others. That's what was going on here in in Corinth, remember? They were abusing each other. They were feasting and shutting out other believers. That's why in Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you're bringing your offering to the Lord to worship and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there, go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and present your offering. Listen, if there are problems you have with other believers in this church or other believers, period, don't you dare take of the Lord's table. Another way to drink unworthily, eat and drink unworthily, is by failing to take seriously the symbolism in the elements. Look at verse 29. He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. If you don't really respect what those elements point to, the body and blood of Christ. And of course, the whole passage summarizes that we drink and eat in an unworthy way when we harbor unrepentant sin. When there's sin in our lives that's not dealt with before God, we are to judge ourselves, we're to examine ourselves. Here's what it comes down to. No sin, however great, excludes you from the Lord's table if you are repentant. And no sin, however small, allows you to come if you're unwilling to repent of it. We are to examine ourselves, and only then can we take in a manner that's worthy. But if we celebrate the Lord's table while we tolerate divisions with other believers, while we fail to take this whole event seriously, if we take of the Lord's table without examining ourselves, without refusing to repent of, or while still refusing to repent, I should say, of what we know to be sin, there are terrifying results. Look at verse 29. You will eat and drink God's judgment to yourself. Verse 30, there are many, there were many in the church in Corinth who were weak and sick, and there were even some who had died. Why? Verse 32, they were being disciplined by the Lord. It's a serious, serious thing. But you and I, if we're willing to confess our sin, to deal with the issues in our lives, to judge ourselves, then we will not face that judgment and we can remember our Lord together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series titled The Lord's Table. Join us next time for a brand new series as Tom once again takes us to God's Word. 
But Tom, before we end our time today, how about sharing a closing thought with us? You know, friend, I hope you have been struck as I have as we've walked through Paul's teaching in 1 Corinthians on the Lord's table about what an amazing gift Christ gave us in this ordinance, this way to remember him. It's a great opportunity for us to recommit ourselves to follow Christ as Savior and Lord. It's an opportunity to deal with our sin. But above all of that, it's an opportunity to remember what it is he has done for us, to remember the incarnation, to remember his substitution that he suffered and bled on the cross in our place to satisfy God's wrath so that we could know him, call him Father. I hope those great realities have encouraged you. And I hope you're also encouraged to remember that someday we will sit down with our Lord in his kingdom and feast together. And the Lord's table is just a small reminder of what's coming for us. Thanks, Tom. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.